All right, we're back. In our third and final segment, I want to do just one more obituary. In this case, about someone I never knew about while he was alive. He would not be the first person in that category. But upon reading his obituary in The Economist, I thought the passing of Robert Ford might be worthy of some mention. Noted the magazine, among the other officials of the Tibetan government, he stood out somewhat. No silk robes, no long plate, no five-inch earrings. Instead, a business suit, which it was difficult to bow, or sit cross-legged, or mount a horse. In the street, people stared at his fair hair, and Tibetan friends refused to use his shampoo in case they too came to look like that. Robert Ford was hired by the Tibetans in 1948 to create a modern communications network. More modern, that is, than treks by mules over the highest mountains of the world. His brief, bestowed with the Dalai Lama's blessing, was to put the eastern stronghold of Chamdo in touch with the capital, Lhasa, and Tibet in touch with the outside world. It's a remarkable story. The magazine notes that training Tibetans to understand radio was hard. Ordinary folk would search for the man in the box. High officials would bow to the microphone and present it with white scarves. Notes there were very few clocks in Chamdo from which to fix two-way conversations. Instead, he had to time his broadcasts by the position of the sun. Describes a rather lonely existence he lived in Tibet, and in October of 1950, Chamdo fell to the Chinese army. He could have escaped the country, but adventure was what he had gone to Tibet to find, and not having found it with motorbikes or his job as a radio instructor, he felt unable to abandon his Tibetan staff and friends. At least the outside world should know that Tibet had not meekly surrendered. Ford made for Lhasa by riding over a precipitous 15,000-foot pass, mostly in the dark, only to find that on the other side the Chinese were waiting for him. He was imprisoned and endured countless interrogations for five years. His captors were convinced he had poisoned the Geta Lama, a Tibetan priest with close ties to the Chinese. Mr. Ford had in fact refused to treat him, although he was the best doctor in Chamdo, having learned first aid in the Boy Scouts. The magazine notes that by contrast, the best the medical monks could do was recommend the use of the Dalai Lama's urine. In the end, the Chinese did not kill him. Instead, they tried to make him a communist true believer by relentless psychological torture. Gradually, he resolved that only a confession, albeit phony and partial, would save his life and sanity. He schooled himself in Maoist jargon, glibly denouncing imperialism, practiced self-criticism, and confessed to thought crimes, all the while displaying thoughtfulness, dogmatic conformity, and above all, sincerity. After four years, he was allowed to write to his parents, who had feared he was dead. A year later, he was considered reformed and was deported to Hong Kong. After retiring from the British Foreign Service, Ford became an outspoken advocate for Tibet. As the years went by, his status grew. As the only surviving Westerner with first-hand knowledge of the country before the Chinese invasion, he was well-placed to rebut the occupier's propaganda. Yes, China had probably raised living standards. Yes, progress in the old Tibet had been slow. But, he noted, a healthy, well-fed robot is a poor substitute for a human being. And boy, don't you hope someone writes a biography about this man. All right, here's an item I missed in our first segment, talking about uh, how the Arctic is opening up with climate change. Here's a uh, piece that dovetails with that. Last week, Russia launched a flotilla of Navy vessels, which completed a voyage across the Arctic Ocean. The Russian Ministry of Defense has since announced that this was the first of what will be regular patrols of newly accessible shipping lanes. 
And yes, the lanes are now open during the summer owing to receding sea ice. Provides a maritime shortcut between Northern Asia and Western Europe. And if you noted some of the news about that flood that took place in Colorado last, uh, last month, they're now describing it as a one-in-1,000-year rainfall incident in that part of the country. That's a quote from a spokesman for the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. As it turned out, Boulder got a year's worth of rainfall in less than a week. The torrential rains and subsequent floods killed eight people, displaced 11,000, and destroyed close to 18,000 homes. Noted new scientist, although natural disasters are difficult to attribute to climate change, the a one degree centigrade rise in ocean temperatures since the 1970s accounts for 5% more moisture in today's atmosphere, which is enough to invigorate already powerful storms. But there may be some good news in the global warming front. We're learning that we may be able to uh, create carbon sinks in things like peat bogs. Noted new scientist in the September 21st issue that of all the carbon produced by human activity since 1750, nearly 2,000 gigatons, which is about a quarter of what has been produced, has been absorbed by the land. The trouble is, as noted in the article by Rachel Gross titled Deep and Dark Mysteries, is that we really don't understand how these peat bogs are working and necessarily how we might increase the carbon absorption in them. In fact, rather surprisingly, the piece quotes Leonardo da Vinci, who once said, we know more about the movement of celestial bodies than the soil underfoot. The piece notes that little has changed in the five centuries since, and to ecologists, bogs are mysterious black boxes. Almost all their carbon storage and chemical processes take place out of sight within the mushy layer of peat. We certainly hope the U.S. Department of Energy can study this and uh, gain some valuable information. Another uh, dovetailing article on this subject in New Scientist, in, the case, in this case the October 5th issue, talked about how the USSR's fall turned out to be great for emissions. In fact, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union created the largest ever human-made carbon sink. In 1991, the Soviet Union formally split into separate republics. The loss of government subsidies and privatization of land led to one of the biggest land use changes of the 20th century. 455,000 square kilometers of farmland got abandoned. Ever since, plants have been reclaiming the land and locking in carbon as they grow. The rate of plant growth depends on the type of soil. But preliminary calculations seem to show that uh, altogether the abandoned land has locked away 42.6 million tons of carbon every year since 1990, which is equivalent to storing 10% of Russia's annual carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels. Of course, with the world population growing as it continues to do, it's hard to imagine that letting land go fallow is going to be something that... Uh, we homo sapiens are going to be able to employ effectively to help us. All right, in the few minutes we have left, we should mention a new book that's uh, getting some attention out there. It's titled Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, the Damascus Accident, and the Illusion of Safety. It's by Eric Schlosser, the investigative journalist that gave us um, Fast Food Nation. We have talked about some of the stuff in this book on this program before, although we've not had the pleasure of having Mr. Schlosser join us. 
But some of the reviews in the book are probably worthy of quoting from. Matthew Price wrote in Newsday, Eric Schlosser's latest work is the most edifying and most frightening book I have read this year. Deeply researched and masterfully written, the history of nuclear weaponry will wake many readers to the fact that the world has come close to nuclear catastrophe many times, often because of the mishandling of American bombs and warheads. As Schlosser reports, from 1950 to 1968 alone, at least 1,200 nuclear weapons in the nation's arsenal were involved in accidents. In 1961, a bomb 250 times more potent than the one dropped on Hiroshima fell from a stricken B-52 near Goldsboro, North Carolina, and might have detonated if one fragile switch had failed. Another review noted that command and control just isn't history. The nowness of the story is the point, noted John Lloyd in the Financial Times, noting that, quote, the hair-raising sloppiness, unquote, that has characterized U.S. management of its nuclear stockpile suggests how dangerous the world has become now that the membership of the nuclear club is at seven and counting. He notes that the weapons management hasn't... uh, been the only weak link. Our vaunted detection system has mistaken a flock of birds and even the moon rising over Norway as an imminent Soviet attack. It's pretty scary stuff, and in future installments of this program, we're going to talk more about it. We'll also be talking more about uh, the 35th president, John F. Kennedy, as we near the 50th anniversary of his murder. I would like to cite that the Atlantic... A compilation of articles about JFK titled JFK in His Time and Ours. Probably worth having. The Robert Dalek piece alone about JFK and the military is uh, quite intriguing. The Cuban Missile Crisis was, of course, the closest the world ever came to an atomic exchange. And as Daniel Ellsberg points out in his book, Secrets, uh, there was a plan by the military to use what was called tactical nuclear weapons in Vietnam. The piece notes that even in 1961, the military advised uh, John and Robert Kennedy the solution to the Vietnam War was that you drop a bomb on Hanoi and you start using atomic weapons. Evidently, General Lemnitzer, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, promised that if we're given the right to use nuclear weapons, we can guarantee victory. The piece also notes that JFK once said, the first thing I'm going to tell my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that just because they are military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. I think the minute or so we have left, we couldn't do better than to, uh, to take a clip from one of the great black comedies of all time, which is based on this very topic. Of course, I'm referring to Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I think we'll go out with an extended clip from that. And close noting that this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We hope for next week's show to bring you Josiah Thompson, whose new micro-study on the Kennedy assassination titled Last Second in Dallas, I think will prove most intriguing. And now let's go to Stanley Kubrick's version of The War Room at the White House, circa 1963. I'm friends, Ives. Ask you for the key and the recall code. Have you got them handy, sir? I told you to take it easy, group captain. There's nothing anybody can do about this thing now. I'm the only person who knows the three-letter code group. Then I must insist, sir, that you give them to me. Do I take it, sir, that you are threatening a bother officer with a gun? Mandrake, I suppose it never occurred to you. And while we're chatting here so enjoyably, 
A decision is being made by the president and the joint chiefs in the war room at the Pentagon. And when they realize there was no possibility of recalling the wing, there will be only one course of action open. Total commitment. Mandrake, do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I didn't think I knew that, yeah. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that, 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, nor the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. <laughs>